1: I have you loud and clear. Hello. 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 Hello.
2: Hello. Welcome.
3: welcome. <laughs> science.
4: And
2: that is to say... Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or...
3: Big time. brain. Life. The universe.
2: Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. And that's with me, Chris Smith, and with Phil Sansom.
4: This week, we're celebrating the great Scottish tradition of Burns Night, but with a special dose of Science. We've got haggis, history and hip-hop. Well, a Kaylee anyway.
2: Plus, an update on China's virus outbreak, the Earth's oldest meteor crater and... Uh. Scientists recreate the voice of a 3,000-year-old Egyptian mummy.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
2: Now first this week, an update on the emerging viral infection from Wuhan City in China. The disease was first picked up by Chinese authorities right at the beginning of December and the source appears to be a food market in Wuhan City.
4: The virus itself is a newly identified member of a viral family called coronaviruses. Chris recently spoke to epidemiologist Neil Ferguson from Imperial College London.
5: The severity of that disease varies from person to person who gets it all the way from very severe, some deaths have been caused so far, to apparently really quite mild. We just don't know at the moment how most people are getting infected, but increasingly it looks like human to human transmission is playing a more important role.
4: This story is moving so quickly that back when we spoke to Neil, there were only a few cases confirmed outside China. Chris, as a virologist yourself, can you give us the update what's happened since then?
2: Well what we've now learned Phil is a bit more about what this agent is. We know it's a member of the family of viruses known as coronaviruses. These do infect humans naturally but they also infect lots of other animals too and they fall into three subfamilies alpha, beta and gamma and this virus is in the beta coronavirus group of viruses and why that matters is that there's a close relative of this virus called SARS which some listeners will remember was what emerged from China under extremely similar circumstances in 2002 to 2003 and spread around the world. It infected about 8,000 people. It caused about 800 deaths in more than 50 countries. This new virus is about 90% similar to SARS when we've read the genetic code for it. And because of the connection to this food market we know that there was a probably under-the-counter trade going on in illegal and other wildlife species in that market. So what scientists are suggesting is that probably a consignment of animals, most likely bats, were brought to that market. Those bats have infected either humans directly or an intermediate animal and that intermediate animal has become very infectious and then passed the infection on to people. And what we're now seeing is onward transmission because we've got evidence that this virus is spreading from people who caught it into other people who've had contact with those people.
4: Those were some pretty scary figures, obviously, that you just mentioned for SARS, 800 deaths out of 8,000 cases. Is this new virus, from what we can tell so far, as dangerous and will it spread as widely, do you think?
2: overall the number of people dying is not as high as it was for SARS which was about 10% it seems to be about 5% also the people who are succumbing to this many of them are vulnerable already they are elderly or they have other health problems but it is early days and that could change because the other thing about these viruses is they can mutate. They're finding a home now in a new host and that is us. And there's every reason to be suspicious that as they learn to live in their new home, they're going to change genetically and that will rewrite the rules of the ballgame.
4: And do you know how many people roughly have been infected so far?
2: we're very reliant on data from china now you take that with a pinch of salt because we know that when sars happened in china china knew about that for many months before they told the rest of the world and that's probably part of the reason why sars managed to gain such a toehold and spread so far before it was clamped down on they have been more open and they have been more transparent with this outbreak but at the same time you always have to be cautious about just swallowing the figures that are passed to us We know now they're talking about thousands of cases that they have confirmed in China. But when one looks at the news of what's happening in China and you see lockdown of entire areas of the country and them saying, we're now going to build a new hospital with a thousand beds in it and we're going to do it in two weeks. Now, that's a major undertaking and that suggests that they're very concerned.
4: Obviously, some of the people listening to our show will fit into those categories that you mentioned earlier, people more at risk, maybe people who are older. How worried should they be even if they live nowhere near China?
2: Well, I think one should never be complacent with an emerging infection because this is something which has never circulated in the human race before. No one is immune to this and it is a moving target. It could mutate, it could change. And so one has to be very cautious about saying it's going to be terrible but one shouldn't be complacent and say it's probably going to be fine. What we can say is, A, we know about it. B, we know that we can make vaccines against agents like this because there's an experimental vaccine that appears to work against the Middle Eastern coronavirus. So I think given that we're watching for it and we are quite well prepared, I would say, I would reassure people, but at the same time, don't take
4: it for granted. We've also had a question in from a listener for you, Chris. Jim Hungerford sent us this.
6: Hi, Chris. I was wondering about the R0 for the new coronavirus. How
7: can that be measured as a single number when I would have thought it very dramatically depending on the particular situation, like if people are crowded together or if they're particularly susceptible because of the weather, etc. Many thanks.
4: What's he talking about there? What's an R0?
2: R0 stands for the reproduction number. In other words, when a person is in the community and they're infected with something, how many new cases of that infection will they cause as a direct consequence of having the infection? If the R0 number is greater than 1, that means the outbreak is going to increase because for every case there's going to be more cases than you started with. On the other hand, if the R0 number is less than 1, the infection is going to dwindle and it will just fizzle out.
4: Oh, so if every infected person infects two other people, then R0 equals two? Correct. So do you know anything about what it is for this Wuhan coronavirus?
2: We don't. And the reason we don't know is because it's early days, the data are patchy, and they're going to be based on certain geographies in China. And the point that that Jim is making in his question is surely there's going to be different parts of the world with different populations and the virus will behave differently. Well, when we talk about making these r naught values, we're talking about an average. So we would see how this thing performs. As we gain more understanding, we would compute a more accurate r naught value. For measles, for example, you're into double figures. That's one of the most infectious viruses we know. SARS, it was down at, you know, single figures, maybe between one and five. It was very low. Flu is about five on a bad year. And so therefore we're looking at a number which is probably going to be down in those low numbers, I would say, based on the trajectory this thing appears to be taking. But it is early days, and that's just my speculation.
4: Finally, have you got a quick take-home message for someone who's seen a lot of news about this virus and isn't quite sure what to make of it?
2: Yeah, first of all, I wouldn't panic. And secondly, I also wouldn't waste your money on a face mask, unless you're going to go and buy one of these proper fit-tested PPE masks which forms a proper seal around your nose and mouth and you're going to wear eye protection and the reason eye protection matters is because your tear ducts drain into your nose so any viruses that land on your eyes if they can't infect your eyes they can still drain into your nose and infect you via that route so don't waste money on one of these dopey face masks go and buy a pint of lager and sit in the pub it'll cost you probably less it'll protect you from the virus equivalently well and you'll also enjoy it more.
4: That's advice I can appreciate. Thank you, Chris. And we'll be sure to keep everyone posted as this story develops. Now, if you were to step back 3,000 years and meet the person who subsequently turned into an Egyptian mummy, what might they sound like? It turns out possibly like this.
2: That is the recreation, would you believe, of the voice of Nez Now, he was a high-ranking priest in ancient Egypt, and now scientists have used an MRI scanner to image the structure of his throat and to recreate it with a 3D printer. And by using a speaker to simulate the vibrations that would have come from moving vocal cords, Nez can speak and sing again. Well, ish. Adam Murphy heard from Royal Holloway University of London's David Howard. How you go from mummy to maestro.
8: You've got to get into a hospital, and that's clearly done out of hours for fairly <laughs> obvious reasons. He then has to be lifted out of the sarcophagus onto the MRI table to be taken into the machine. The nice thing is, of course, he doesn't move. With Neziomun, the pictures are very clean indeed, because, of course, he's not breathing, so nothing is moving. You then take a scan of the area from below the larynx in the neck to the upper end of the nasal cavity, so that we've got all the vocal apparatus And then you, in the computer, identify the airway in that, which comes out in contrast to soft tissue and bone. We then extract that from the airway in software, and you can then put a sheath round it in the virtual world. So a virtual sheath goes round it that's two millimetres thick. And finally, you extract the sheath itself and send it to the 3D printer, which then produces the outline of the actual vocal tract that's in his head and neck. That is placed on the loudspeaker with a special little coupler we've got designed that fits over the top, and we then put the sound in and listen to the result. And how close
9: is the recreation to how Nesiamun would have actually sounded?
8: We believe acoustically the sound that you're hearing is exactly the sound that he would make if he were suddenly to become alive again and just make his vocal folds vibrate. And we've done work on that in the past, looking at living people, including myself, where we make scans and we compare them acoustically with the original speaker. So we are confident that what we're hearing is how he would sound if he spoke exactly as he is in his sarcophagus, bearing in mind that his tongue has lost its main muscular bulk. So that area of his tract is not as it would have been when he was alive and speaking.
9: Amazing. is, is there any way, potentially, to get speech out of this, to get a 3,000-year-old voice talking?
8: We've been thinking about this. At the moment, you can't do that with a plastic vocal tract because you can't move it around. It's solid. But if we were able to calculate the sound coming out of the lips in the computer for a larynx input and we were also able to move elements of the vocal tract in the computer whilst it's calculating it, then you'd have the basis of doing what is known as articulatory synthesis. And elements of that can be done. So I think it is plausible to think that we could make him articulate sounds. Um, The first step for that would be to reinstate the missing part of his tongue, so that that tongue muscular bulk is... There to allow sounds to be made, different vowel sounds and so on.
9: And then, just lastly, what do you think of his voice? You have some musical experience behind you. Do you think he's got a chance
8: on the voice? Yeah, I think he probably has. I mean, he's got the right acoustic characteristics as is shown in the paper, so he certainly has that side of it. But what we do know is that he did lead the worship and he did indeed sing. And he did this regularly because he was a priest to Ramesses Eleventh, So that was part of his day job. And my Egyptian colleagues tell me that the actual material he sang is documented, how it was pronounced, and also in terms of the music to which he sang. One of my big interests here would be to try and recreate some elements of his sung output.
2: There you go talk like an egyptian that was david howard he was speaking to adam murphy and that work was published in the journal scientific reports
10: hello sorry to butt in katie here from the naked scientists did you know we make other naked shows too
7: the fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club.
10: So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought, or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience.
7: Well,
9: my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go with spicy.
10: <laughs> Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, still to come, the crucial science of how quickly a bumblebee can chuck up and we break out our haggis for Burns Night.
4: But first, we're going way back in time to what's just been confirmed as the oldest asteroid crater on Earth. It's called the Yarrabubba Crater in the centre of Western Australia and it was created when something large smashed into our planet over two and a quarter billion years ago.
2: By looking at rocks that came from the impact, these are called shocked crystals. The team of Australian geologists were able to figure out when exactly it happened. And because that date corresponds with some really big changes in the Earth's climate, the next step was to make a computer simulation to see what might have happened and what the consequences were. Thomas Davison at Imperial College in London created that simulation and he told the whole story to Phil Sansom.
11: We went to a crater in Western Australia called the Yarrabubba Crater collected some samples and dated those samples and found that the age of the crater is older than the previously known oldest crater. So this crater is 2.229 billion years old. What was it that hit the Earth 2.2 billion years ago that made this crater? Good question. So we don't know exactly what it was, either an asteroid or a comet. The most likely scenario would be an asteroid hitting Earth. If it was an asteroid, we've run some models of this and found that the most likely scenario would be a a 7-kilometre asteroid hitting at around 17 kilometres a second. Wow. My colleague, Tim and Derrickson, he went out and collected some samples from within the crater, picked up some bags of rocks and brought them back to the lab. And then they sorted these samples. They used some special techniques to pull out some very small grains that are called zircons and monazites. Now, these grains that they were analysing were about the width of a human hair.
4: And those are things that can only come from something like an asteroid or a meteor? The features seen in those grains, they have shock features in them,
11: and these are only found in impact events. So when an asteroid has hit the Earth at, at many kilometres per second, it formed a shock wave which has squeezed the rocks in, under really high pressures and temperatures and changed the crystal structure of the minerals. And how do you tell how old those are? So they looked at these two minerals monazite and zircon, and they looked at the amounts of lead and uranium in those grains. Now, uranium naturally decays to lead over time at a known rate. So we know that if you look at the ratio between the uranium and the lead, we can say how old a sample is. When you have an impact that squeezes the rocks under these really high pressures, that removes the lead
4: from these grains and you sort of reset that clock. Oh, it's like the asteroid took all the sand out the bottom of the hourglass. Or the exactly. lead. And now it, yes. the uranium's turning into lead again. You can see how much it's changed. That's exactly right, yeah. What did the world look like back then?
11: So we think that when the asteroid struck the Earth and, and formed the Yarababa crater, we think the Earth was under a global ice age condition. So this is sometimes called the snowball Earth scenario. We think there would have been maybe a couple of kilometres of ice, possibly globally, So I then ran some computer simulations using some shock physics models to find out what would happen if an asteroid of this size hit the Earth with an ice sheet on top. What does that look like to the area and the ice around it? So the ice itself, immediately under the asteroid, is going to vaporise almost immediately. The ice is then pushed up high into the atmosphere in this sort of what we call a vapour plume going up into the upper atmosphere, and then that would then spread out through the atmosphere once it's up there.
4: And then what does that
11: do to the atmosphere? Well, water vapour is a a greenhouse gas, so if we can get enough of this up into the upper atmosphere, this could then start forcing the climate change, warming up the atmosphere and causing the Ice Age to thaw. And did it cause a big climate change? Well, there was a a big climate change at the time of the impact. Normally we can attribute global climate change to perhaps some volcanic activity. That wasn't the case at the time that the Arababa impact happened. So, we then think that maybe this could be the driving force behind that climate change. And how big of a change was that? Before the impact event, there was this perhaps global glaciation. After the impact, in the rock record, those sort of glacial deposits are not present for up to 400 million years after the impact. So, whatever thawed out the Earth, it had lasting effects and lasting changes on the climate.
2: It's an amazing piece of detective work, isn't it? And fingers crossed it's not going to happen anytime soon again. Thomas Davison talking to Phil Sanson. And that uh, paper describing the work is in the journal Nature Communications. On to a different type of climate effect now, and that is HFC 23, hydrofluorocarbon 23. This is a gas produced as a byproduct of manufacturing refrigerants. But it's also an extremely potent greenhouse gas, thousands of times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Consequently, leading manufacturers have been put under considerable pressure to reduce their HFC emissions, which they claim they have done.
4: But bizarrely, atmospheric scientists are seeing quite a different picture. Megan McGregor spoke to the University of Bristol's Matt Rigby.
5: We saw reports from China and from India which showed that they had completely cut down emissions of a very potent greenhouse gas called HFC-23. This gas has been growing fairly consistently in the atmosphere for a few decades now, and it's about one tonne of emissions of this gas is equivalent to somewhere between twelve and 15,000 tonnes of emissions of carbon dioxide. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to then take a look at the data and see if that cut had actually played out in the atmospheric record. But unfortunately, what we seem to be finding is quite the opposite has happened, that actually instead of emissions reducing, they've grown and they're now higher than they've ever been.
3: You wanted to keep an eye on the level of HFCs, How did you go about measuring their concentration in the atmosphere?
5: We use very sophisticated techniques, essentially they're methods to try and separate the air into its various component parts. And the concentrations of these HFCs are really challenging to measure. They're down at the levels of parts per trillion. So we have to use extremely sensitive instruments and we have to use techniques that essentially try and get rid of the bulk gases in the atmosphere, so things like nitrogen and oxygen. So we we find ways of essentially removing those from our air samples and just leaving us with the more concentrated samples of the gases that we're interested in. And what we do is that we measure the concentration of a whole range of gases at various points on the Earth's surface. For example, we have a measurement station on the west coast of Ireland. We have measurement stations in Barbados and Samoa. They tend to be in relatively clean environments where we can look at the change in concentration in the background atmosphere.
3: Is there any way, using your measurement technique, that you could figure out what's going on with, for example, more targeted measurements?
5: Yes, so that's going to be the next step. We have a measurement station in Korea, which was not used in this paper this station, instead of being far away from emission sources in the background atmosphere, is actually quite close to some potential emission hotspots. So, for example, it, it sees air arriving from the east coast of China. And so in the past, we've used measurements from that station to be able to identify emission sources from China and the Korean Peninsula. So hopefully we'll be able to verify whether it is China that is still continuing to emit large quantities of HFC-23.
3: So what would you say to someone in the UK who is trying to reduce their carbon emissions, they're cycling everywhere, they don't eat any meat, while this kind of thing is going on in the background, given that it's such a potent gas?
5: It's still important for all of us to think about how we live and how we can live more sustainably. But at the same time, yeah, we do need to keep up the pressure on the chemical industry because they do have a disproportionate impact on climate and on the ozone layer so hopefully you know with the two together with enforcement action on chemical manufacturers and action by billions of individuals then we'll move towards a more sustainable economy
2: so don't give up on riding your bike just yet matt ridby there and that paper is available in the journal nature communications
4: and finally, the speed at which bees vomit is not a subject that's been much discussed in scientific literature, but a study from the University of Cambridge suggests that it affects the kind of nectar bees prefer, and therefore the kinds of plants farmers might want to breed.
2: Hamish Simmington is with us to
12: discuss what he's been doing with these bees. Tell us more. I am a plant scientist at the University of Cambridge, and we're looking at what it is that bees like about flowers, trying to make flowers more efficient at being pollinated. And if we're doing that, we need to know... What the rewards are like, the nectar and pollen, when they actually get to the flower and we don't want them to spend too long on the flower because then they won't get round enough, quickly enough but we don't want them to spend too short a time on the flower they don't get that energetic reward that they need So how did you do these studies? So we have a flight arena within our bumblebee lab which is about a box about one metre by about 30 centimetres high we have a little colony of bumblebees which we've bought Uh, they arrive in a small buzzing box in the post and scare the receptionist and we let one bee out at a time. We have a look at how much she drinks. And then we can have a look inside the bumblebee colony. We have, we've fitted it with a perspex lid. And we can watch the bumblebee as she goes back into the nest. Now when she's taken this nectar into the nest, she will vomit it back up for her nestmates to drink because not all of the bees in the nest will go out and forage.
2: So obviously the easier it is for a bee to find a flower, find a drink, draw up the drink, get back to the nest and then deposit that nectar reward That's going to make that bee favour those flowers, and those bees are going to do better.
12: Yeah, it's the trade-off between it being really easy, which if it's water, that would be the easiest of them all, but they're not going to get any energy back to the nest there because they're not bringing home any sugar. They need to balance how easy it is to drink, how far they need to fly, and how easy it is to spit it back up again when they get back to the nest. And it's that last thing which nobody had ever looked at before. The stronger the solution... The thicker it is isn't it you just have to
2: compare golden syrup with say some water that you put a spoonful of sugar in and one's very watery one's very very sugary but it's really really sticky exactly hard to draw up
12: and it's not a linear relationship it's actually exponential there's very little difference between water which has 35 percent sugar and water that has 50 percent sugar in it but when you get up to about 65 it starts getting treacly that's about maple syrup territory there i'm intrigued because are those honey jars I in have, front of you? I How appropriate. Some, <laughs> I brought some fake nectar along, which I made in my kitchen at home earlier today. I believe Phil has volunteered to be the uh, the guinea bee, <laughs> yes. Tell so, me what
4: I'm doing, because you're handing me these two jars which have identical-looking what could be water, but is obviously a lot thicker than water.
12: Yeah, so I've, I've made two concentrations of uh, fake nectar here. One has 35% sugar in, and one has 65% sugar in. And the 35% one looks quite watery, and the 65% one is quite thick. So what I'm going to do, drinking for a bumblebee takes a couple of minutes. I'm not going to get you to lap it up. That would look rather weird and would not make good radio. I appreciate that. So if you just take a mouthful of it, then when the bees are sick, they have to spit it back up through their esophagus. I'm not going to make you do that as well, because, again, being sick on air would not be good. But I want you to spit it out through the straw into a cup, which I've got here.
4: Okay, I do have a sweet tooth, but let's see if this pushes it to the limit. I'll, I'll do it now.
12: Okay, so he's taking a drink and then he's going to spit it out through the straw... And that went quite quickly. So you emptied a whole mouthful in in a second or so. Yeah. It was very quick. Pretty quick. Yeah. So here we now have the 65% solution. This is more like maple syrup territory, so it's going to be quite a lot sweeter. And then I want you to try and spit that out again.
4: And by the way, the straw that you've given me is not a normal drinking straw. It's one of the extra thin ones you get in very nice cocktails. I,
12: I stole it from my daughter's drink.
4: Very nice. Okay, here we go. I'm going to drink a sip of the thicker one and spit this one out too. My goodness. It's got one dropout, so They're far it's turning very
2: red, Phil. It's more, more. proving difficult. <laughs> <laughs> is it
12: fair to say that was very hard to spit?
4: I couldn't even do it.
12: Yeah. There we go. So bumblebees have to do that as well. So there is this trade off, this optimizing of how they can get it out. Now, why are you doing these experiments? Why does this matter? There are going to be a large number more people on the Earth in the coming decades, and insects around the world are generally in decline. We're going to need to make more food, but lots of our food relies on pollination. So if we can make plants more efficient at being pollinated and better rewarding for the insects which visit them, then we'll be able to use those insects better to help produce food. You're talking food about actually tweaking
2: nature so that plants make an ideal concentration of nectar to make this, this process more efficient.
12: It's tweaking plant breeding in crops, not tweaking wild plants, but it's trying to inform our plant breeding and make us breed plants which are not only nutritious and good for us, but also beneficial for the insects. Certainly given filibuzz, he's gone
2: bright red. Hamish Symington from the University of Cambridge, thank you.
4: And now it's time for us to open our mailbox and see what messages you have been sending our way. This week, listener Gal asked us, why does one rub one's eyes when one is tired? Gal, as far as I understand it, rubbing your eyes can stimulate the glands that make tears in there, which would help with dry, tired eyes. And apparently, it might also help you to relax by slowing your heart rate. Chris, any insight? Am I right?
2: Yeah, when we get tired, basically you're fighting against your body clock, which is instructing you to go to sleep. And when we go to sleep, our nervous system shuts off the supply of various secretions, including saliva, but also critically tears. And when you rub your eyes, what you're doing is A, distributing the smaller amount of tears that you have over the eye more efficiently, and B, by stimulating the front of the eye, actually the eye responds to direct stimulation via a nervous reflex to produce more tears. And it's there because if you get dirt or muck in your eye, it triggers reflex eye watering to flush out the muck. So by rubbing your eye, you're basically fooling your eye into thinking you've got muck in it. So you increase and augment the tear flow. And that helps to make your eyes feel a bit more comfortable when you're tired.
4: I was going to ask just about the opposite scenario because sometimes when I get into bed, I find my eyes weirdly water quite a lot.
2: Well, it's possible because of your posture. When you're standing up, the area that the tears drain into is this thing called a punctum. And if you look on your lower eyelid, right where the lower eyelid meets your nose, you'll see a tiny black dot. And that's your plug hole for tears. And they drain down there into your nasolacrimal duct and then into your nose. When you lie flat, of course, it's harder for the tears to run across your eye and then down the drain. So I'm not so surprised because your tears are still being produced and you haven't fallen asleep yet and dialed down the tear production so they have to go somewhere and they're finding it harder to get down the hole so they just run down your face
4: that's fascinating i had no idea i didn't know that existed on my face
2: have a look in the mirror and you'll see this tiny black dot and i've had people come and they say i've got this thing in my eye and i've been picking at it trying to get it out and it's actually their tear duct
4: oh no yeah
2: so don't pick at that
4: well, thanks, Gal, for your question. And if you listening have got a message for us or a question you'd like us to answer, send it in to chris at nakedscientist.com or use our online web form at nakedscientist.com slash question. Plus, if you'd like to read any of the studies that we've talked about this week, they're all available on our website as well as transcripts for all the pieces. Just go to www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association
0: with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for
9: UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at
0: spitfire.co.uk.
3: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
2: This week we are donning our kilts and we're raising our virtual whiskey glasses because we're celebrating Burns Night.
4: This two-century-old Scottish holiday honours the memory of the great Scots poet, Robbie Burns. And here on the show, we're hosting our very own Burns Supper, but with a special twist of science. Coming up, haggis, toasts and a live science ceilidh.
2: Before we get into that, though, we need to know what we're actually celebrating. Where does this event stem from and what's behind the various traditions? Well, with us to explain is Robert Irvine. He's reader in Scottish literature at the University of Edinburgh. So what's the background to all of this, Robert?
6: The first Burns' Supper happened only a few years, maybe six or seven years after Burns' death. And it was simply his friends uh, gathering on the anniversary of what they thought was his birthday to toast his memory. Now, these men were all Freemasons. Burns was a Freemason. Freemasons like inventing rituals and making speeches and drinking And I think that is the basic kind of recipe that then was developed and sophisticated over the decades into the Burns Supper that we're used to today, which can be a very complex event. What can you tell us about Robert Burns, the man? Well, Burns was born into fairly humble circumstances. His father was a tenant farmer. Burns himself, when his father died, he took over responsibility for the family farm, The science angle here, if I can introduce that, is that this was at the height of the Scottish Agricultural Revolution. All sorts of new techniques and methods and livestock breeds and crops and crop rotation and enclosure and all those sorts of things were being introduced. Now, the problem here for people like Burns and his father was that landlords charged rent on farms according to the productivity the farmers would be capable of once they were improved, but they expected the tenants to borrow the money and invest in those improvements themselves. This left lots of farmers permanently in debt. And in some ways we have the agricultural revolution to thank for Burns's career, because once he was in charge of the family farm, Burns thinks, God, I want to get out of this. And his talent as a writer, as a poet, as a songwriter is the thing that lets him get out of farming.
2: Most people say, though, that you go into the arts at your peril because they're notoriously poorly paid. Did he actually make money during his working lifetime as a poet, or is it only in death that he became more famous?
6: What Burns was able to do was, once you became famous, that gave you contacts in the upper classes, in the aristocracy, and then you used your contacts in the aristocracy to get yourself a job, and that's what Burns did. So he got himself a patron, aristocratic patron's, who were able to get him a job in the excise service as a customs man. And that was the, the way in which he rescued himself from his economic insecurity.
4: And then the night itself and the supper, to what extent is that an accurate reflection of him or his legacy?
6: I think it's quite an accurate reflection of his tastes. <laughs> he was, you know, because this has kind of Masonic roots, it was originally an all-male all male event. And Burns loved all-male society. He loved being a mason, he loved drinking clubs, he loved uh, literary societies and reading clubs and so on. I think he would have loved Burns' suppers. But the actual having bagpipes to pipe in the haggis, the various exchanges of speeches and so on, these are all things that came long after Burns'. Speaking of which, would you mind
2: doing us the honour kicking off our Burns' supper here on The Naked Scientist with the, the
6: famous Selkirk Grace? I would love to. Some he meet and cannae eat, and some would eat that want it. But we hay meat and we can eat, and say the Lord be thank it.
4: Thank you very much, Robert. I should
6: I should perhaps just explain there that meat in Scots just means food. So this is a vegetarian friendly
4: grace, it's not, not oh, just for meat eaters. Great. Vegetarian food welcome. I think we're ready then to get underway with our burn supper.
2: Well I hope your mouth is watering, Phil, because we're gonna bring out the main course, which is Haggis this is of course Scotland's national dish and I absolutely love it and I'll let you in on a little secret it'll be the second haggis that I've had today I actually cooked a haggis for lunch and I sort of made a bit of a fusion because I did the English traditional dish which is roast beef I cooked that with haggis and I hope that all the proper Scots people who we have on this program this evening are not going to kill me for this and I've trespassed terribly on tradition but it was a rather effective combination you You must
4: really like it
2: Oh, I do. I absolutely love it. Squeamish people, beware, though, please, because you actually might prefer to eat your haggis without knowing how it was made, as as Phil has been finding out.
4: Uh, Seeing as last week's show was all about reducing food waste, we did think it was important to recognise how good a job haggis does to compensate here. And so I went to meet Chef Tristan Welch from Parker's Tavern here in Cambridge. And for the uninitiated, here's your content warning. There's talk of blood and guts coming up.
9: So we're going to make haggis. We've got all the ingredients laid out here. The key ingredient, these fabulous things. Lamb's lights or puck. What do you think? It's horrible. (laughs) I hate it. I hate it. A puck or a light, your big Jesse, is um, basically everything from the tongue of the lamb right the way down. So we've got our lungs, the liver, the kidney, the heart... Some people use the windpipe, some people don't. I think it makes a bit of a dirty haggis rather than a clean haggis. Why does a haggis use all of this? For me, it's about using the whole animal. Everything's taken, cooked and made completely delicious and stuffed inside a sheep's stomach. We're going to trim it down first and the bloodier bits we will discard. I'll do it like so, I'll show you.
4: As Tristan went to work on the assorted lamb bits, I tried not to lose the lunch I'd had earlier. I need to get a stronger stomach. Well, we've got a sheep stomach. Is that strong enough for you? <laughs> I'd really rather it wasn't here.
9: Here we are. This is our lungs, our liver, our hearts, our kidneys. They've all been diced up. We've taken some of the thicker tubes out, let's say. I've put some bay leaves, some salt, and we're just going to cover it with water and simmer it for about an hour.
4: Are they very different to cook with than a normal slab of meat? Gosh, completely different you have to be very very delicate with it but one of the
9: one of the funny things the strange things about cooking a lung is it floats on water (laughs) so it's just difficult to cook would you have to push them down yeah yeah so we'll put some paper on top and then another pan and that'll just keep them submerged in the water
4: as the lamb's puck simmered it went from bright red colored to a deeply unappealing gray
9: I've taken them out of the cooking liquid and I've chilled them down and I've mixed it with some onions which I've sweated down in suet I've got some more suet fat beef suet fat and I'm going to put it all through the mincer it looks pretty gruesome at this point I, I, I have to admit there's nothing particularly glamorous about making a haggis but wait until the end product back in the 1800s didn't they believe that haggis was an animal that you'd catch and it's got one leg shorter than the other one so it can run round hills That sounds like something you'd tell to a fool Englishman. You know, I used to live in Scotland, and I was called a fool Englishman for many, many years. Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's mince away, then.
4: I can only apologise here, because the sound of haggis mix going through a mincer might be the most unpleasant sound I've ever recorded. (laughs) And there we are. So you add a
9: generous amount of oats to it. It's almost 50-50. A good pinch of salt. So now we add our spices, which is nutmeg, coriander, allspice, black pepper. That's a really important one, but people always have their own spice mix, and they keep it very closely guarded secret. And to this lovely mix, we're just going to add a little bit of our cooking stock, which I've had reducing down there on the stove.
4: With the mix ready, Tristan got out the container for the haggis, a cleaned, pale white, cord-textured lamb's stomach.
9: We're stuffing away here. I've taken a nice tennis ball size of the haggis. I've popped it into our lamb stomach. And now I'm gently tying around so it forms a little parcel. Trim the string. And there we are. That's our haggis. And it's ready to be poached for about an hour.
4: Are you looking forward to eating it?
9: Yeah, it's going to be delicious.
4: Tristan Welch there, Chef Director at Parker's Tavern in Cambridge. And we've actually got the haggis here right now. We're going to break into it in just a second.
2: It smells delicious. I can barely contain my enthusiasm, actually. But before we do that, with us now is my favourite broadcaster and comedian. That's Fred McCauley, who's been dreaming a little bit bigger than just the single haggis I have on the plate in front of me. Hello, Fred. Hi,
1: Chris. You've broken a world record. Yeah, I was part of an attempt on Friday evening to set the world record for the biggest Burns supper ever and it was verified by the Guinness World Records people so we'll be in the next volume, 926 of us. Goodness,
2: who made all the
1: haggises? I can't honestly tell you who the company were that were behind the scenes making it all but uh, a round of applause I think for the chefs that managed to do that for 900 plus.
2: Have you ever done this before? Is this the sort of climax to something you've been building up to for a long time?
1: It was a company up here celebrating 160 years of existence and they, they decided to market by doing this and I just happened to be the guy that was hosting it. So my name's going to be attached to it. Unverified though, in 2011, Chris, when we were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in January, my late friend, the chef Andrew Fairley, myself and a number of other people had what we think might have been the highest ever burned supper at nearly 17,000 feet.
2: Oh, you mean in altitude rather than in chemically altitude, assisted? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know me. (laughs) And this recent one, Fred, as the host, did you also give the famous address to the haggis? No, we had a a burn specialist to do that. But the night before, at another burn supper, I did the address to the haggis. And yesterday at a friend's lunch, there were about 20 of us for lunch, and I addressed it again then. So how much haggis have you had in the last three days? Have you beaten me? Because I'm on my second. (laughs) Can I just commend you, Chris, for having it with roast beef? Because I'm all for trying it with different foodstuffs. And a a favourite up here now that I've heard some people enjoying is pretty much the same. They have a little bit of haggis, neeps and tatties, but they have minced beef as the main part of the meat produce. Oh, I'm so relieved, Fred, because I was terrified
2: I'd trespassed on tradition.
1: And did you dribble a wee bit of whiskey over the haggis?
2: No, but should I have done?
1: Yeah, I would say maybe 50-50, Really, um, what fifty percent? Yeah. As in, 50%. I I eat equivalent volume for volume whiskey no, 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 with no, haggis. Fifty no. percent of the people that will eat haggis might. Oh, a okay. Bit of I, I thought you meant I
2: had to have fifty percent of what <laughs> I ate. Was <laughs>
1: two kilograms of whiskey, please.
2: Well, look. Are you, you going to do us the honour of addressing our haggis that we've got? Would I've got like it on a plate to? here in the studio. I would okay. love you to. Would you?
1: All right. I'll give it a go. Here we go. Fair for your honest, sonsy face, great chieftain of the pudding race. boon them all, you tack your place, pinch, tripe, or therm. wheeler are you worthy o'er oh, grace, as lang's as my arm. The groaning trencher, there you fill your hurdies like a distant hill. Your pin would help to mend a mill in time of need, while through your pores the dews distilled like amber bead. His knife, see rustic labour dicht, and cut ye up with ready slicht, trenching your gushing entrails bricht like ony ditch, and then. <gasps> What a glorious sicht, warm reekin', rich. Then, horn for horn, they stretch and strive, deal tack the hindmost, on they drive, till, all ah, their wheel swalled kites belive are bent like drums, and all good man may slight to rive. Bethank it, hums. Is there that is French ragout, or olio that would stow a sou, or fricassee would macker a spew with perfect scunner, looks down with sneer and scornful view, and sick of dinner? Poor deal. See him o'er his trash, as feckless as a withered rash. His spindle shank, get his a whip lash, his knee a knit, through bloody flood or field to dash? Oh, how unfit! But mark, the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, clapping his wally knee, a blade, he'll make it whistle in legs and arms, and heads he'll sned like taps a thistle. Ye powers, will MacMan mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare. Old Scotland wants nae skink and wear that jouts and luggies. But if you wish her great fruit pair, gi her a haggis. Wow. Fred, Thank was that Britain. from memory? Well, pretty much. I, I, I'll be honest, I, I've got it here just in case, but haven't done it over the last few days. And I did wonder, there might be a few words in there that need a bit of translation. When he's describing uh, the haggis, he describes it uh, the hardies like a distant hill. Well, hardies is a Scottish word for buttocks.
2: Oh, and how does that creep in? But, you know, one other thing, because I was doing a bit of research before the programme and I came upon a story that you had a friend in Germany and you did a Burns Night in Germany.
1: Is this true? It's a story that was passed on to me about a a late Burns specialist and I, I told this on QI a number of years ago. As you've just heard, the language that Burns used, Old Scots, there are a lot of words that are similar, a few that are very different. And this Burns Supper in Germany, they decided to take Burns's poem and they translated it into German. And then they had an afterthought that many of the people attending would actually be English, so they translated it back out of German and into English. And the, the second line of the address to the Haggis, Great Chieftain of the Pudding Race, was delivered that evening as mighty furor of the sausage people <laughs> Oh goodness. how did that go down <laughs> well it gave me a laugh it made Stephen Fry laugh and it made an awful lot of people watching laugh as well Fred
2: thanks so much for joining us on the programme and, and delivering the address to our haggis this evening
1: cheers Chris, a pleasure
2: Fred McCauley there
1: uh,
4: You join us right in the middle of our Burns Night Supper of Science. We're having our haggis along with a wee, unfortunately virtual, drama whisky.
2: And a very nice haggis it is, actually, Phil. Your cooking is exceptional. Tristan's recipe is is absolutely fantastic. really is lovely. Mm. Now, at this stage in the event, there is a toast to the immortal memory of Robert Burns. And following that, a male guest gives a special toast to the lasses, thanking and praising the women around the table. Lewis Thompson is from the University of Cambridge. He's a former Naked Scientist intern... He's also a Scotsman. So here's his toast to the historical lassies of Scottish science.
7: Since the Scottish Science Hall of Fame features ten great male scientists, it seems that the lassies of Scottish science are not oft discussed. But in the words of Rabbi Burns himself, amid this mighty fuss, just let me mention, the rights of women merit some attention. In the tradition of taking matters into their own hands, how have the lassies of Scottish science done in maintaining Burns' three rights of women, which he claimed were protection, decorum, and admiration. Protection was the realm of Victoria Drummond, the first woman member of the Institute of Marine Engineers. Serving on the cargo ship Bonita during the Second World War, she improved the speed of the ship's engines, while under fire from the Nazis, to allow the ship to dodge the bombs. Next on Burns' list, decorum. As all scientists know, good scientific decorum is the correct classification of your observations so that others can easily understand your work. Williamina Fleming knew the importance of this, helping to create the Pickering-Fleming system for the classification of the thousands of stars whose light emission patterns she examined and she discovered the Horsehead Nebula in 1888. Finally, Mary Somerville, the first woman to feature on Royal Bank of Scotland banknotes, apart from the Queen, has certainly had her fair share of admiration. Her writings on astronomy in the 19th century ultimately led to the discovery of Neptune, and her obituary in 1872 proclaimed, there could be no question whatever as to the Queen of Science. So thinking of Victoria Drummond, Williamina Fleming and Mary Somerville, I invite all the gentlemen listening to please stand and raise your test tubes in a toast to the lassies.
4: Lewis Thompson there. And now let's go over to our female guest, Jenny Gracie, who has the traditional response to the laddies.
13: Thank you, Lewis. And Scottish men are no slouches either. They have produced some of the most famous inventions in the world, where we have John Logie Baird and Alexander Graham Bell to thank for their TVs and phones. Perhaps it's something in Scotland's beautiful landscapes that ignite the ideas. Robbie Burns himself once wrote, "Give me a spark, O Nature's fire, that's the learning I desire." Alexander Fleming was inspired by nature and found that a certain type of mold had bacteria-fighting properties. This observation led to the discovery of penicillin, which has saved countless lives around the world. Another Scotsman, John Napier, made our mathematical lives easier by inventing logarithms to handle complex calculations that otherwise could take more than a day to solve. And he invented an early version of a calculator and also popularized the decimal point. Then there's James Watt, a Scottish engineer who made groundbreaking improvements to the steam engine design changes that helped power the industrial revolution. He developed the concept of horsepower and also has a unit of power, the Watt, named after him. To squeeze in one more Bonnie Scotsman, we'll mention James Clerk Maxwell. His connection between electricity, magnetism and light paved the way for today's technology and he figured out what makes up Saturn's rings. He also demonstrated the first colour photograph. The item he photographed? Well, it was a tartan ribbon, of course. Many people aspire to reach Rabi's great legacy and the male scientists mentioned above have certainly made their mark in the world. With this thought I invite all the ladies listening to please stand, raise your conical flask and a toast to the laddies.
2: And it's appropriate it's a conical flask because Jenny Gracie is herself a physical chemist and she's at the University of Strathclyde and she was a naked scientist intern with us last year. Jenny thanks very much.
4: Well, now that the virtual drinks have been drunk and the toasts have been toasted, let's finish our supper with a traditional Scottish dance, or ceilidh. Lewis Hu runs an organisation called the Science Cayley that adapts these traditional dances to demonstrate science concepts. Lewis, how do you turn a ceilidh into science? It is a strange combination, but if you have been to a Scottish Cayley dance, you know it is not about
14: the dancing ability. It's about that spirit of feeling welcome. And, and I guess as an educator, I was really interested in how do we bring that spirit into science and to culture as well. So you don't need to be an expert to feel like you can join in. So I was working in neuroscience and had a Cayley band at the time. And just about wondered whether, could we use the patterns and the structure of Cayley dances to actually convey scientific concepts? And then as, as a way of building connections with diverse communities as well. So linking curriculum, different parts of research, researchers
4: with lots of different people across Scotland. Well, I, I've been to a Cayley myself, and I can also attest to the fact that they're very welcome to people who are completely uncoordinated. But what kind of concepts can you turn from science into a dance? We found a bit of
14: everything. I mean, traditional dance is all about stories and, and actually science is all about stories as well. So we've probably got about at least 40 science themed dancers. It can range from biomedical scientists. So our infamous Orcadian strip the helix for DNA replication. We've got mathematics of symmetries. We've got chemistry. We've got climate change, sustainability. We've even managed to do something on linear and circular economies. And we've even got a wee bit of physics as well. So we've collaborated with astronomers and Looking at the merry dancers, for example, of Hercules and Gaelic, which links the story of the Aurora, the, the mythology around it, with the
4: science of actually how it happens. And, and what's the most complicated dance slash most complicated scientific concept that you've actually tackled? Oof. That's a great question.
14: One of my personal favourites as a neuroscientist has to be the action potential, which also from a dance point of view is quite exciting because it's not just using Scottish dancers, but it's using dancers from across
4: the world. So we've got a a few contra dancers from America. Am I right that that's sort of what I'm going to attempt now today and you're going to, to sort of give for our listeners? Absolutely.
14: So, tonight, we're going to try probably the world's first via radio. We're going to do the Canadian Brain Dance. Canadian Brain Dance. It's based on quite a traditional Canadian barn dance. Normally, it's a partner dance, but I've adapted it so you can even try it in the comfort of your own homes if you'd like.
2: Well, look, Phil's volunteered, Lewis. He has got headphones on on a on a cable, so don't send him in too many pirouettes, or he's going to get very tangled up. But can you talk us through the moves for both Phil and anyone at home who? And don't do this while you're driving, everybody. But <laughs> for, for Phil to have a go. At. Warning. Yeah.
14: So if you imagine yourself now as part of a neuron, so the Canadian brain dance is all about how neurons send messages, both electrically and chemically. So you're going to be standing up with plenty of space in front of you, hopefully, and imagine you're now about 10, 15 microns in the neuron of the brain.
2: OK, Phil, um, Phil is, is doing we... his impression of a neuron right now.
14: Very good. OK, so first off, Phil, you're going to go forward, two, three, and then you're going to hop on the spot. And then you're going to do that again. So you're going to go forward, two, three, and hop. So at this point, you are representing the electrical signal firing in a neuron. And because the neuron is covered in these fatty coats called the myelin, it allows the electrical signal to actually literally almost hop, meaning it transfers across the neuron much faster.
2: Well, he's doing it. So you've got him going forward, two, three, hop, forward, two, three, hop. So he's, he's an action potential going down an axon now. What does he do next?
14: You are then going to twirl, twirl forward, two, three, and clap. And then you're going to go back to your original place.
2: It wasn't a very loud clap, Phil. You've got to do better than that. There you That's better, yeah. Fantastic. Get into the spirit of the thing, yeah.
14: At this point, you're at the end of a neuron, and you're releasing the chemical signal into the space in between the neurons, the synaptic cleft, and most people might know these chemicals as neurotransmitters being
2: released. Into so what does, he, what does he have to do? Is that when he claps? That's the neurotransmitter yes. squirting out?
4: Exactly. Imagine the right. physical release. Are that you way. ready, so really Phil? Chaotic. You you want to give it a go? I'm ready. Okay, I can give it a go. Are you,
2: are you oh, happy hold to? On. to we, we still got a few more moves. Oh, uh, quickly then.
14: You'll shuffle forward, forward and back and back. So you've got the binding of the neurotransmitter to the receptor, and then finally, if there's enough excitation and it is a Cayley after all, then that you're going to polka and skip. But I'll, I'll run through the moves again. The first time through the music. Oh, all right so then. Well, then. well let's work. let's roll it and I'm let's ready. see how you
2: get on. Are you ready, Phil? I'm ready. Are okay. you ready, Lewis? Let's Good roll work. the music.
14: Okay, you're going to go forward, two, three, and hop. Forward, two, three, and hop. You'll twirl forward, two, three, and clap. And back to your place. Forward and bind. Back, bind. And then you're going to polka or skip. Forward, two, three, and off you go. And again, the electrical signal goes forward. You're going to hop. Forward, two, three, hop. Release of the neurotransmitter into the synaptic cleft. You're binding to the right receptor. And hopefully, if there's enough excitation, <laughs> the next neuron will start firing Polka, Polka, Polka to finish and cycle again. There we go.
2: <laughs> well, you certainly impressed everyone this end, Lewis, and um, Phil, Phil's worked up a sweat. Did you enjoy that?
4: I actually did. I don't think I did very well, but I think I had fun. And I felt like an action potential.
2: There you go. That's good. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. (laughs) Thank you very much for telling us all about it. That was Lewis Who, and uh, you can actually find out more about what Lewis and his team get up to and the Californian Braid Dance, if you're so inclined, on the Science Cayley website.
4: And that brings us to the end of our Burns Night. I hope you've enjoyed our celebration, that you've learned a little bit about Scots culture and Scots science. Chris, what do you think? Good Burns Night, right?
2: Well, I'm very glad I've actually done it because I've been eating haggis for years and enjoying it very much, but I've never actually been to a Burns Night, a proper one.
4: Well, thanks for listening, and thank you to Robert Irvin, Tristan Welch, Fred Macaulay, Lewis Thompson and Jenny Gracie, as well as Lewis Who.
2: Now, to finish up, it's time for Question of the Week, and this week's question is straight out of a disaster movie plot – And it comes from listener Ray. The Earth has apparently reversed its polarity fairly regularly
14: and is perhaps overdue for the next instance. Is anything known about how this will happen and the effects? How will it affect our reliance on
2: technology?
3: The Earth's magnetic field is generated by the swirling motion of liquid iron metal in our planet's core. This magnetic field is approximately the same shape as the field around a bar magnet, with one north and one south pole, a so-called dipole field. I talked to Richard Harrison, head of the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge, to find out how long the field might take to flip.
10: Every 200 to 300,000 years on average, the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field flips around. So what was the magnetic north pole becomes the magnetic south pole and vice versa. The last reversal was 780,000 years ago, so yes, you could say we're overdue for a reversal. However, reversals occur randomly and at irregular intervals, so it's impossible to predict exactly when the next one will occur. A full reversal takes a few thousand years to complete. So even if it were to begin tomorrow, it wouldn't flip in our lifetime.
3: It's a classic disaster movie plot. The Earth's magnetic field reverses suddenly and all hell breaks loose. Richard suggests the reality might not be quite so apocalyptic.
10: To understand what a reversal might look like, it's crucial to realise that the magnetic field is not a perfect dipole. For example, in the South Atlantic Anomaly, which is a, a region of unusually low magnetic field strength in the South Atlantic, the field deviates significantly from that of the expected dipole field.
3: During a reversal, the regular dipole part of Earth's magnetic field would be zero, leaving only these strange anomalies behind. We could end up with several magnetic poles spread around the globe.
10: In this multipolar state, the magnetic field is significantly weaker and more complex, leaving us more exposed to the influx of cosmic rays and solar irradiation. The effects of this would be similar to those currently experienced inside the South Atlantic anomaly – Satellites suffer increased interference as they pass through that region and astronauts on the Space Shuttle have reported that their laptops crash. On Earth, we could see massive disruption to power and satellite communication networks. But having said that, the field has flipped many, many times during Earth's past and there's little evidence that it's had a major impact on life. We'd probably survive, but our mobile phone reception may not.
3: Thank you, Richard. Next week's burning question comes from Robin.
12: I heard in the podcast that the reason why we get a sunburn is that the body is trying to fix cells that are damaged by UV radiation. So if one person is sunburned longer than another, does that mean their immune system is worse?
4: Megan McGregor put that piece together, and if you can help Robin out with his question, send us a message by going to nakedscientist.com slash question, emailing chris at nakedscientist.com, finding us on Facebook or Twitter, Or come join the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And
2: that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and do be sure to tune in at the same time next week because it's a science Q&A week and that means you ask the questions and we supply the answers. Send them in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.